Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, December 7th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. It's a massive week in the history of genome editing with the first CRISPR-based medicine expected to win FDA approval any minute now. Stats' Megan Molteni joins us to discuss how we got here and what it means for the future. Then Bruce Booth from Atlas Venture joins us to discuss what was yet another downbeat year for biotech and whether there's reason for optimism heading into 2024. All that after a word from our sponsor. Tori Bosch, editor of Stats First Opinion column and host of the First Opinion podcast. And I'm Jesse McQuarters, editor of Stat Brand Studio. We're excited that Stat is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called Stat Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research. It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at Stat and interact with our writers and staff. You're the people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day. And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for, my editorial process, some writing tips, and much more. And I actually made one about Stat Brand Studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life. You know, it sounds like I'm going to have to hop on to take your course. And Tori, yours sounds amazing. So I'm going to definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com. Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect. About a decade after its momentous discovery and three years after its Nobel Prize, CRISPR genome editing has brought about its first actual medicine. Casgevy, invented by CRISPR Therapeutics and partnered with Vertex Pharmaceuticals, is expected to win FDA approval this week and will soon become available to patients with sickle cell disease. As a sort of programming note, that approval is expected by Friday, and we are recording this on Thursday morning, which is to say... It could happen as we speak. Uh, It could have happened by the time we conclude this conversation. It's quite likely that you right now are listening sometime over the weekend, and it has already happened. So for purposes of expediency, we're going to have this conversation as though Kazjevi's approval is a sure thing and perhaps has already taken place. With that uh, acknowledged, uh, we will bring in one of our colleagues uh, to join us to discuss Casgevy, what it means for sickle cell patients, and the future of CRISPR medicine. Uh, Megan Molteni has written extensively about the rapid progress of genome editing. Megan, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. So before we get started, I just want to say for a note, one day I will be FDA commissioner, and my <laughs> first my first piece of business will be to outlaw drug approval announcements on a Friday. It should never happen on a Friday. Okay. With that so said. Ordered. <laughs> so ordered. Uh, so, Megan, the dawn of CRISPR uh, set in motion scores of efforts, uh, you know, to turn in, uh, to turn uh, the technology into a safe and effective medicine. Why is Kestrebi the first product across the line? Well, I'm a science writer, so I can't speak to what's going on exactly in the business world, you know, with these, this sort of first crop of CRISPR companies. But what I can say is that they picked a really smart target to go after um, by going after sickle cell disease. Because as we know, sort of CRISPR, you know, in its current form, it can do lots of different things. It can flip a single DNA letter, it can insert bigger pieces of DNA. But 
at the time that that, you know, now Nobel Prize winning paper in 2012 came out, CRISPR referred to simply being able to make a targeted double-stranded DNA break. And there aren't a lot of genetic diseases that you can fix by breaking a gene. What you want to do is you've already, usually the gene's already broken. You need to do something else. Um, But with sickle cell, there's sort of this interesting workaround where when you're in the, when the, when a fetus is in the womb, they make a different kind of hemoglobin. It's called fetal hemoglobin. And that hemoglobin um, production goes away after that um, fetus is born and they start making, you know, what's called adult hemoglobin. But you can use CRISPR-Cas9 to turn off the 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 sort of break, B-R-A-K-E, um, on that fetal hemoglobin gene, and you can bring that level back up. And that sort of functionally um, addresses the, the biggest um, pathophysiology of the disease, which is these sickled red blood cells. So if you fix the hemoglobin, those red blood cells kind of pop out. They look like nice donut, um, you know, saucers, and they can carry oxygen around the body. So it was sort of a, by going after a disease that was um, sort of the thing that CRISPR was best at at the time, I think that really um, allowed this swift development toward an actual medicine. It's, it's noteworthy too that, uh, that, you know, scientists and researchers have known about sort of the genetic mutation that causes sickle cell for, I think it's something like 50 years, right? So it wasn't until we sort of had the technology at at, the, at our disposal to sort of to, 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 you know, come up with a treatment that, that actually worked against that mutation. Yeah. I mean, it's a well, just to speak briefly to, to the business angle, you know, it's a well-characterized disease. Um, it's actually the first so-called molecular disease. Um, and, and it's a large patient population. So there are sort of business incentives, um, in terms of having lots of patients, you know, who could potentially treat this, which is not the case in, you know, some of these more ultra rare genetic diseases. So we should note that this is not, of course, a pill, a shot, or even an outpatient procedure that can be done easily. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of actually receiving Casgevy and the time patients need to prepare and to recover from it? Yeah, absolutely. So the way to think about this is, you know, up until Casgevy, sort of the only curative treatment for sickle cell patients is a bone marrow transplant with a matched donor. Um, what the, what the gene editing approach essentially allows is now instead of having to, you know, f- try to find someone who's usually a full sibling, who's a good genetic match, um, which only, you know, is true for about one in, um, five people, you can actually become your own donor by, um, having your own cells collected, having them edited, and then receiving them back as a bone marrow transplant. So that, that's sort of the key thing that CRISPR is doing here. But what that still means is that you still have to go through a bone marrow transplant. So there's sort of, um, we're usually talking about like a four to six to even longer, you know, month process, depending on how, you know, your specific procedures go. But it sort of essentially composes a couple of steps. You're going to have to collect cells. So patients will go in for a couple of days in a row to have cells collected. Those are going to get sent off, um, you know, to be edited in a lab. And then those patients, um, are going to at some point go through a chemotherapy regimen. And the reason they do that is they need to clear out the bone marrow cells um, that are producing those mutated sickle 
um, sickled red blood cells and make room for the new edited cells. Um, and then after the patient um, experiences chemotherapy, they've essentially had their immune system, you know, sort of knocked out. So they go into an isolation room at a hospital. It's, you know, usually a multi-month stay at a hospital, at least six weeks, while their bone marrow sort of settles in and their immune system starts rebuilding and their blood system starts rebuilding. And they're being monitored constantly during that time. Um, and so, and, and they can also, they're also recovering from, um, ill effects of chemotherapy. It can make your hair fall out. It can, um, go after the mucosal cells in your mouth. So you can get these really painful mouth sores and you just sort of feel crappy. Um, so it is, it is a long process. And I should say that, you know, another side effect of chemotherapy, one of the sort of rapidly dividing cell groups that chemotherapies often target are the cells that give rise to egg and sperm. So there's another additional step. If you're a young person receiving this therapy and you want to try to receive, to undergo fertility preservation so that you have some ability to preserve eggs or sperm and have biological children after this process, Prior to chemo, you would do that. So you would either um, bank your sperm or if you're a person with ovaries, you would go through a hormone injection and then an egg retrieval process. And that can add a couple of months in there, depending how many cycles it takes to get those eggs. And one more wrinkle, if a patient is already on hydroxyurea, which is a medication that helps with symptoms, that can knock out sperm counts in men and it may have an impact in women. So there is, if you want to do fertility preservation and you're on hydroxyurea, there's sort of a washout period of a couple of months where you have to go off of that drug. You're going to undergo blood transfusions in the meantime so that you're not experiencing symptoms that then allows you to do the fertility preservation, that then allows you to do the chemo, that then allows you to get the the edited cell transplant. And so, you know, for some people who I talked to, like, it was more than a year-long process. That is a whole labyrinth of <laughs> of uh, aspects to this treatment. And I want to dig in a little bit further to the, the chemotherapy aspect and its um, impact on fertility. You wrote an excellent piece this week on the dawn of Kastjevi and what this process of getting chemotherapy to make room you know, in the bone marrow, as you noted, um, will do to fertility and how it's been handled during clinical trials and what the concerns are during commercial launch. You know, if, if this, you know, drug and let, we're, let's say it does get approved, how are patients and physicians feeling about how the fertility question will be handled in real life? I think it's a really big question mark right now for a lot of patients. So, you know, people who I've talked to who are physicians who care for sickle cell patients um, and who work in the transplant space were pretty clear that the um, risks to fertility of chemotherapy plus transplant have been a really big historical barrier to patients wanting to do that. So in the clinical trials of Kastjevi, all of the patients who uh, received the treatment were offered fertility preservation services free of charge. And what we know from talking to a number of the PIs at some of those uh, clinical trial sites is that this was there was a lot of uptake of that option um, in one trial site every participant 
uh, availed themselves of those fertility preservation services. So we know that it is, um, you know, a, the ability to maintain some reproductive autonomy and some choices over how to build families um, is a high priority for these patients. And the concern is that outside of the clinical trial setting, sort of what is available to patients in terms of those services is going to be um, very much impacted by the states that they live in and the type of insurance that they have, because it's sort of far from guaranteed. And in fact, it's actually quite likely that a lot of patients with sickle cell will not have the um, will not have access to coverage for fertility preservation. Depending on who you are, you know, the costs range a lot, but like we're talking about sort of, you know, at least $20,000 for people with ovaries if they have to do multiple cycles to get eggs. It's, you know, less expensive for um, people who are doing sperm banking. Patients, doctors, advocates are really concerned about a possibility where this treatment is on the market patients are, you know, are going to be wanting to get it. And then they're going to be hit with the realization that if they want the option of preserving their fertility and having the option to have biological children, that they're going to have to cover that, those costs themselves. And for a lot of people, those costs are going to be on what they're going to be able to pay. Well, and to kind of address the, the larger, you know, societal scope of this, most of the patients that will likely be pursuing Cascevi treatments are black people. Um, you, you you dug into that, I, I thought, really well in your article. How are people thinking about like the larger societal question of, you know, an inhibition of fertility for this population? Yeah, I think it's sort of it's sort of a mixed bag. Like there is, I, you know, I want to underline that there is a lot of excitement both among patients and among the doctors who treat them. You know, this is a group of um, patients who have not, his, they've historically been, you know, underinvested in, in terms of research and in terms of the care that they have access to. So having a transformative treatment is incredibly exciting and people are very, um, you know, interested in, in getting this to more people, you know, so I, I don't, so, but that said, I think it is important to recognize sort of the historical context in which this is arriving. And for a number of patients, you know, there, this feels like sort of yet another layer of discrimination that they face in the U.S. Um, healthcare. And, you know, one to get at like sort of why this is sort of a structural issue, um, you know, because of historical racial wealth gaps that, you know, go back to um, the period of enslavement in the U.S., they go back to the period of um, Jim Crow segregation, you have um, that a lot of people with sickle cell patients who, as you mentioned, are of African, you know, ancestry, they are also on public um, insurance, so Medicare and Medicaid, because of that racial wealth gap. And, fertility services, infertility services, um, fertility preservation, those services are almost nowhere in the country are they covered by Medicare and Medicaid. It's only New York and Illinois. Um, and, and even there in New York, they just cover the medications, the hormone injections. And in Illinois, um, it's the, the storage of the, um, 
of the samples, but not the actual procedures to get the, the eggs and the sperms, sperm in the first place. And so the question I think is what changes are going to be made either at federal or state levels in terms of insurance coverage policies that are not going to sort of create or going to fight back against this, um, situation where patients are offered curative therapies, but with this terrible cost of their fertility. So there are about 100,000 people in the United States who are living with sickle cell disease. And when you talk to Vertex, which I have, because, you know, status kind of put a lot of reporters on the story. And when you when you talk to Vertex, they estimate that about 25,000 of those uh, 100,000, so about a quarter of the people in the United States living with sickle cell disease will be uh, would would be potentially candidates or potential candidates for Castrevi, and those generally are people who have very you know very severe or severe disease. So they they have frequent pain crises. They're in the hospital a lot, and, and uh, but you know when you talk to physicians, as I have too, and, and Megan, I know you have too. You know, there's I think there's some. Skepticism, skepticism, maybe not the word, because I think there's, like you said, there's a lot of excitement about this therapy coming, but also there, I think there, people are a little cautious about how many patients, how many people will actually choose to undergo this treatment. And I know from a from a Wall Street perspective, I think uh, the estimates, you know, the, the the estimates of sales and and the uptake of this is is relatively, I don't want to say small, but it's you know, I think that there's there's more of a wait and see attitude uh, to see kind of what what the what the launch and what the uptake of this will look like. And and we should also note that there will be competition because um a gene therapy from Bluebird Bio, which also treats sickle cell disease, is expected to get approval here in the US uh, later in December. So, you know, there will actually be a choice. Uh, physicians and patients will actually have a choice whether they want a CRISPR-based treatment or a gene therapy treatment. Right. Although to to be clear, both the gene therapy and the CRISPR based treatment both require that yes, um, exactly. chemotherapy regimen. So it for both right. of them, the fertility issue um, is still there. So on that point, maybe finally to go thirty thousand feet. Um, you know, as you mentioned, this is an ex vivo CRISPR therapy, meaning you know the patient cells are harvested and then CRISPRed um, and then uh, reinfused. There are also in vivo CRISPR therapies in development for a multitude of diseases that would do the genome editing inside a patient's own body. And so looking at this, you know, outside the nitty gritty of, of um, how this therapy works and, and the patient population, but just as, as the milestone that it is, as the first approved medicine um, based on CRISPR genome editing technology, what does this portend? Like what's next in the CRISPR pipeline? And, and I don't know, are, are we entering a new era of medicine or will this kind of be a piecemeal advance um, as this all moves forward? Ooh, well, you know, forecasting <laughs> is, is, the, is, the, is the hardest thing, um, Damien. I mean, I think, I think it's important to note sort of something that we started talking about at the beginning was that um, there are sort of a limited number of genetic disorders that can be addressed by making a double-stranded stranded break in DNA and, and just breaking that gene. So there's sort of a you know, there's sort of a limitation um, on the original CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which is why I think we've seen a lot of investment in some of these newer generations, base editing, prime editing, uh, where you have like a lot more flexibility to make lots of different kinds of targeted genetic edits. Um, that being said, 
I think, you know, those companies are definitely, you know, looking to see what's going on with Kasjevi, um, and, and certainly sort of following the roadmap that this, um, you know, that CRISPR and Vertex have, have laid out here. You know, I think it's important to note that the FDA, you know, is, is showing some, some caution around in vivo genome editing and the potential for, so if, if the, there's sort of a risk here that we're not, we haven't talked about yet, which is if you take Take the cells out of the body and do the editing, you can be sure that it's only those cells that are edited. The advantage of in vivo genome editing, where you don't have to do chemotherapy, the trade-off is that you have less ability to see where those, you know, CRISPR components are going in the body and if they are, you know, impacting tissues that are not the, the sort of the one that you want. And the biggest um, concern for an off-target tissue editing is um, the germline, you know, if they wind up in in gonads. So um, I think there's a way in which I'm, it's not surprising that we see ex vivo happening first, both from a technical standpoint and sort of like what the agency, the sort of like risks um, that you're able to not have to look at um, that we know the agency is concerned about. So I, th- you know, my expectation is that the wait and see sort of has to do with, we don't know what the, you know, long-term effects of these treatments are. Some of these patients who've received Kastjevi, you know, it's only been in their bodies like a couple of years. Um, so I think there is, um, you know, a desire to wait and see what's going on with that um, before, you know, before we can expect to see more of the in vivo genome editing. But I do think that that is where the field is going. What does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean for CRISPR? I just, I just think it's too, I think it's a little too early to say, um, but I do think that it is sort of providing um, it's at least getting the agency comfortable with this technology and it is a platform technology. And so because we know that you can address other diseases by just changing out, um, you know, the, the RNA guide, it does have sort of, a, there's a lot of potential here. I just think it's still early days. Well, Megan, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you work in biotech, you've likely heard Bruce Booth's name through his work investing in drug startups at Atlas Venture or from his blog posts about the drug industry. If you're based in the Boston area, there's a chance you've spotted him jogging by while uh, leading one of Atlas's 7 a.m. group runs along the Charles River. And Bruce, like many of us, has been reflecting on all that has gone right and in many cases wrong in biotech and what's to come in 2024. And he joins us now to talk about it. Bruce, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Bruce, uh, Atlas Venture just published its annual all-encompassing review of the year in biotech. Uh, By your estimation, the interest in obesity medications and Alzheimer's treatments made 2023 into the year of putting the, quote, big back in big pharma. Uh, We've certainly talked about both of those fields innumerable times on this podcast. Um, Do you think that will carry into next year at a similar pace? Yeah, I'd say, look, both of those areas are in the sort of early innings, I would say, obesity and sort of neuroscience um, more broadly. And you know, just in the last week or so, we've seen two pretty large acquisitions of biotech companies in those in those arenas. So I'm uh, fairly certain that next year we're going to continue to see lots of momentum in both the broader metabolic disease space and, and neurology more generally. 
So outside of obesity and, and to an extent Alzheimer's disease as well, this has been a really tough year for a lot of biotech companies particularly. It seems that each week we see layoffs or companies flagging that they're looking for those hallowed strategic alternatives. Um, but as you pointed out in your blog recently, consolidation, which is to say there being fewer biotech companies, whether through merger or um, obsolescence, it hasn't happened at nearly the rate that a lot of insiders had anticipated once the market started to drop in 2022. Why do you think that is? Yeah, look, consolidation is hard in, you know, all industries, but in particular, you know, I think in biotech, you have, you know, lots of lots of companies out there and doing mergers of equals or, you know, shutting down are those are just tough conversations in the boardroom to have. And, you know, the data sort of surprised me that it wasn't shrinking a bit faster, you know, four or five percent is not, uh, you know, not a big um reduction in the number of public biotechs over the course of the last two years when you hear about all of the, the challenges. Now, some of that's because reverse mergers don't actually change the number. They just, you know, take a dying company and put in a, a surviving one. But, you know, all in all, I think we, we all expected to see more consolidation um, and, and, you know, contraction in the number of, of companies. And that's really not borne out. We did see a acquisition that just came through on Wednesday, um, the purchase of Cerevel Therapeutics by uh, AbbVie, a company that is on that first list of, you know, of organizations whose drugs are being impacted by the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, we're seeing, you know, some of those drug makers start to react. AbbVie, just like in the last couple of weeks, has been really active, has been making deals, has been making collaborations um, and, and other agreements. Do you think that IRA pressure is going to force other pharmas into acquisition mode in order to build you know, alternate revenue streams? I, I'm sure there will be some pressure from, from that. I think in the case of AbbVie in particular, they had you know, two very large products, both of which you know, are coming off patent or facing challenges um, in the marketplace. And so it's uh, while the absolute dollar values are somewhat amazing, $20 billion spent in the first, you know, couple weeks here of December um, by AbbVie, um, you know, it's certainly not unexpected that they would, you know, be leveraging their their cash war chest to, to acquire companies. I mean, that continues to be the way most larger companies derive the majority of their assets. Right. This, uh, as I noted in the year in review, 75% or two thirds of assets that pharma is launching actually come from external innovation and most of those through MA. So, this is the theme that I think we're going to continue to see. So, Bruce, I wanted to get back to the consolidation issue uh, for a second. Uh, you know, when I saw your blog post, uh, I, my reaction on Twitter was that that's, it was depressing. And mostly that was because I, I was sort of surprised and I thought, well, we really need to see more consolidation, you know, fewer. I'm, I'm in that camp that I think that there's just too many biotech companies out there. You know, and I was in New York uh, at our event uh, on Monday and I had a fireside chat with Bazad Agazadeh, who, you know, he's the portfolio manager at Avaro Capital. And, um, you know, his, we, we talked about this and, and he, he feels like we're going to, you know, yes, maybe there haven't been that many in 2023, but, but that is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And then we'll probably see more, uh, in 2024 and beyond as a lot of those companies that were formed back in sort of the 21, 22 period, you know, start to lose money, uh, or, you know, run out of money. Um, I wonder how you feel about that. You know, both, you know, do you think that consolidation is a good idea? And also do you think that we'll see more? consolidation, fewer companies in 2024? 
Yeah. So a bunch of questions in there. I would say yeah. first off, there, you know, we have too many public biotech companies, especially given the, you know, universe of institutional investors. I, I blogged uh, a couple years back on the relevancy challenges. How does a young public biotech company become relevant to the top twenty healthcare specialists that are out there? Um, you know, those are the firms that you know build and, and accumulate large positions in biotechs over time. This is the sort of the Baker Brothers, the BVFs, the Avoros, those kinds of investors are only, they only have 20 to 30 big core names. And so how do you do that in a world when there's 600 biotech companies? So there's a, there's a long tail of companies that get sort of orphaned or stranded out in the public markets. And, you know, a lot of that will lead to consolidation. Some will lead to you know, dissolutions, and maybe it, it will take more time to see those. And others, I think we're just going to see reverse mergers happen. You know, right now there's a um, a large number of backlogged private companies that have sort of tapped out the private markets. And, you know, we have a bunch of public companies that are essentially shells with cash in them. So the supply and demand balance there suggests we're going to see more reverse mergers here in 2024 as well. So, in terms of private companies, there have been points this year where it's felt like there's a little bit of a disconnect between the narrative of basically biotech companies struggling to raise money or definitely struggling to raise money at valuations that they once could have commanded. And then at the same time that there were a few announcing $200 million or $300 million Series A rounds as though it were still 2021. And then more recently, some of the companies that had raised fairly recent and very sizable rounds have disclosed layoffs, whether small or large, um, in some cases within months of those rounds. What is going on here? What 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 explains the that all of these things can kind of coexist at the same time in, in one market? Yeah, really interesting point. And certainly one of the things that surprised me a little bit was the that the um the frequency of these mega rounds, rounds larger than 100 million, has not really gone down to pre-pandemic levels. They remain you know, 20-ish, $100 million financings every quarter. That's a lot of large financings. We've seen, you know, a, a, a good number of 200 million plus financings, as you know. These are significant, significant rounds with a large group of investors behind them. And um, in, in some ways, it's surprising that that hasn't contracted further. But I think it reflects the sort of have and have not challenge in the biotech ecosystem, again, even in the private world. You know, great companies, great syndicates, solid science are able to raise these really large rounds. Um, in particular, um, you know, when there's um, emerging later stage assets in them, which a lot of those um, big rounds were. The second thing that you mentioned, which is sort of belt tightening, I think in general, boards, regardless of the cash positions in companies, are asking management teams to belt tighten a bit to make whatever cash they have last longer. So instead of having two years of cash, if we can belt tighten to have three years of cash or tighten up our ambitions for how many programs to work on instead of working on five programs, let's work on three. Uh, those kinds of questions, I think, are being asked by boards and uh, and management teams alike. To dig into that a little bit further, it used to be more common that private rounds and especially large private rounds were were tranched. You know, startups would get money in chunks as they hit certain milestones. Now, that dropped off as biotech kind of hit its sugar high in the last couple of years, you know, particularly into 2020 and 2021. Is that still the case? Yeah, I would say 
from at least our vantage point at the very earliest end of the of the ecosystem, we continue to see tranching in almost all of our Series A rounds. You know, that capital is coming in um, around de-risking points and milestones. Um, I think a lot of the later stage money that's coming in to Series B rounds and beyond, it, you know, is often not tranched. And it's fair to say that even before the pandemic, some of those later stage rounds were not tranched then either. Getting capital into the company and then hoping to quickly take it public used to be a uh, an important strategy. That's obviously um, not likely to be happening um, here in the near future around taking companies public. But certainly um, those later stage rounds, I think the the frequency of tranching is definitely not uh, super high. But like a you know two hundred million dollar Series A round, that could be entirely handed over at one point in time. It could be. I would say most of the large Series A rounds that I've seen do have some sort of tranching mechanism around them. Um, you know, the the it's not a Series A round, but you know, Nimbus raised two hundred and ten million. That has uh, you know two tranches of capital in it around mm. around some milestones. So, I think tranching is still a tool being used by investors to you know focus on the disciplined allocation of capital. So Bruce, to wrap this up, uh, as I said, we're we're sort of thinking about 2024 uh, here in the you know middle part of December. Um, you know, is the worst behind us? Uh, obviously, we you know on the public side, I mean, we've seen a rebound in the XBI. Uh, you know, it's it's almost it's almost sort of flat for the year. We've had a nice little rebound over the last few weeks. Um, you know, are we so have we sort of seen the bottom, and and 2024 is going to look better, or do you think uh, things revert back? To the bad times. Yeah. No, look, I think for the last couple of years, the macro forces that have created an overhang on the biotech market, on the risk capital market, um, have been, you know, that that has been a dominant force in driving the sector downwards. I do think with, you know, better inflation numbers, a, a view that maybe the Fed is done raising rates and might even be lowering rates next year. That you know that uh, that first derivative there is changing sentiment towards the space. I think we're up twenty something percent since the bottom in uh, in October, largely on the back of you know changes to that macro environment. And so, if that holds and remains uh, more favorable, I think twenty twenty four could be a great year. I do think the M and A environment, um, you know, maybe it's just uh, the cadence of news flow here in the last month, but it does feel like there's an increasing. Uh, amount of significant M&A happening both in the private and public world. And that obviously um, will create some buoyancy in the sector as well. I mean, it was it was a, in a sort of sneaky way. It was actually a really strong M&A year, it feels like. No, it was for sure. Public M&A in particular, I think we've had more billion dollar plus acquisitions this year than ever before. Um, there's really been a lot of uh, a lot of activity in that space. And increasingly on the private side, we're seeing significant deals um, you know, the uh, the acquisition of uh, Carmont Therapeutics uh, most recently being a pretty significant, uh, a pretty significant deal. And so I think you're going to see pharma taking their cash hoards and putting them to work here over the next three to six months. There's certainly rumors of lots of other companies that are in processes. So I think it'll be an exciting one. How is it uh, within Atlas? I know, I mean, you mentioned Carmont Therapeutics, an obesity startup. You guys had another obesity startup for Sonus that was acquired by Eli Lilly, you know, private side, how was it? How was the year for for Atlas? I mean, it, with uh, with the acquisition of Nimbus's um, Tick Two 
program by Takeda and Versanis, it was actually a great year for us in terms of overall realizations. Those were both fantastic outcomes for us. So despite some of the headwinds more broadly, Atlas had a, had a pretty good year last year. Well, Bruce, thank you as always for joining us. Great to be here. All the best for the holidays. Take care. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether or not you think I should be the FDA commissioner. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Because my thing is, so my thing is, so the joke is, is that I, if I was the FDA commissioner, I just wanted to like happen naturally. I have a thing. I have a thing. I have a bone to pick, but it will be that way. Okay. Okay.